Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Laura Wade Geary, non-executive director of John Lewis. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. So a very warm welcome to the University of West of England. Uh, For those of you that have not met me, I'm Steve West. I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University, and I'm welcoming you to the Bristol Business School. Um, we are at uh, now the last in the series of our de- uh, Distinguished Address series. Um, everyone that we've done in this series has had a packed house, which is fantastic. Um, and we've got uh, so clever with our technology now, we're doing live streaming for people that can't get into the lecture room. So that's great. And we're also, of course, uh, creating a podcast for people who want to revisit um, what's been said over the series and, of course, re-engage with our fantastic uh, speakers. Uh, The series starts again in October, so please tell your friends uh, about the Distinguished Address series, um, and I'm sure we'll go from strength to strength. So uh, uh, I I look forward to welcoming you back uh, in October. I'm uh, tasked with all the important things, so the first thing to say is Uh, We do not expect any fire alarms uh, this evening, so if there is uh, ringing in your ear, it's either tinnitus or it's a real fire alarm. Um, Either way, we will help you and support you to, uh, if need be, get out of the building. The fire exits are on either side and one at the back. As I said earlier, we are recording uh, this, um, and uh, if you don't want to be uh, recorded, just please let us know. Um, probably don't put your hand up for questions, that's an obvious thing. Uh, and if you have got mobile phones, can I encourage you to switch them on to silent, um, uh, but encourage you to tweet. Uh, so for those of you that are um, Twitters in the audience, uh, the uh, hashtag is hashtag Bristol Lectures. Um, please feel free to tweet uh, and get involved. Uh, and share what's going on with uh, your networks. So this evening I'm delighted to welcome our guest speaker and also our honorary grads. We've had an afternoon uh, where we've been engaging with honorary graduates of the university and showing them just what we've been up to as a university over the past few years. And I'm sure and I hope that they've uh, learned something and enjoyed uh, sharing some of our successes. Um, But this evening is about our guest speaker, uh, Laura Wade Geary, um, and I'm delighted to uh, welcome Stephen Robertson, non-executive director, Hargreaves Lansdowne PLC, Timpson Group, and probably the most important thing, a visiting professor of this university. (laughs) So uh, without further ado, Stephen, can you please uh, join me and welcome our guest speaker? Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, A very good evening to everyone here at Bristol Business School. It's great to be here. Uh, As Steve remarked, we've had a fabulous series uh, this year. And tonight we have the most dazzling finale, a veritable... (laughs) 
wait for it. Feast of digital insight from our speaker. Uh, Laura, we are fortunate indeed to have you with us. Uh, Laura is a truly remarkable retailer, indeed a remarkable woman, whose knowledge of customers, of colleagues, and the digital economy has no doubt resulted in tonight being the sellout that we see it is. Laura, you are, of course, box office here at Bristol Business School, and we're delighted you're with us. Now, just the job of introducing Laura could be a lecture in itself. Uh, Laura was educated just up the road in Cheltenham and then on to Oxford, where remarkably she earned an ice hockey blue. I thought you had, used to have a very different physique to get an ice hockey blue. It shows how little I know about these things. And then, as history will tell us, she charmed her way onto an extraordinary adventure to follow the trail of Marco Polo from Palestine to Mongolia, uh, or part of that journey. William Dalrymple, with whom she went, reveals his and Laura's terrifying and sometimes illegal, I have to say, adventures in a series of exotic and dangerous countries in his book Xanadu. Well worth a look. And then Laura went to work. After starting in consulting, dull, 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 Laura then landed a proper job in retail. Of course, she rose very, very quickly within the country's biggest retailer, Tesco, to become quickly the chief executive of Tesco's e-commerce business. Now, I suppose you could observe that at the start of the century, the digital economy was also an exotic and rather dangerous place for retail. Um, but Laura certainly made a fist of beginning to understand what the potential was. I remember meeting uh, Laura for a, a coffee at uh, Tesco HQ. Um, and she made a very good point, because in those days, uh, the directors, every Friday, used to go out and visit stores up and down the country. Um, and, of course, on those days, the directors would phone in every five minutes to make their observations, good or bad, and some poor buyer or marketing person would receive feedback, and I guess probably on balance, most of it bad news, and you've got to fix this and fix that. And by contrast, Laura said, it's very funny. I get no phone calls any day of the week from any directors telling me about our website or competitors' websites. And it seems to me that retail directors took a while to catch up with where Laura was already trailblazing. I guess perhaps we in retail have moved on a bit, but it, it's great to be with the person who first saw the way that things were going. In 2011, Laura was seduced, if I'm allowed to still say that, by Marks & Spencer to join their board and run their digital business, but instantly they realised there was a much bigger way to play the game, and Laura became um, the director running their stores too, and therefore had the whole of the customer offer um, uh, in her remit. And just as the newspapers were telling us that Laura was certainly going to take over as the new chief executive of Marks & Spencer, 
Laura went away to do something much more important, and I believe her daughter is about three and a half years old now. So uh, uh, Laura made a new decision then. She was going to go plural, um, and today she serves on the board uh, of John Lewis Partnership, British Land, that can't be an easy gig, um, NHS Improvement, an even tougher gig, um, and the Digital Advisory Board, and a number more. So Laura knows her way around the digital economy and knows her way around boardrooms. I must remind myself to say that, of course, today, this evening, Laura is speaking on her own behalf and will be candid about what she thinks and not on behalf of the organisations and boards that she sits on. I did rather cheekily ask her friends what, uh, what word they'd use to describe Laura. Here are the answers. She's tough. She's ambitious for herself and her businesses. She's down to earth, formidable and frighteningly intelligent. Wow. So that's your annual appraisal done, Laura. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Laura to Bristol Business School. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura Wade-Geary. Well, I had listened to some of the podcasts, so I knew what Stephen would be up to, but cool. Follow that, eh? Um, I am, despite that introduction, delighted to be here. Um, I put the flesh on the bones of this talk while I was on holiday recently. Oh, and I haven't turned on. <laughs> Can you hear me now? <laughs> I admitted to Stephen earlier that um, I'm, I'm a trustee of the Royal Opera House and a keen opera person, and I found myself with my phone going off unable to switch it off so I had to sit on it so you know there you are there's there's sort of pricking the balloon of digital expertise right um, I'm delighted to be here and I kind of put the flesh on the bones of this talk while I was on holiday and it was a real break involving trekking up steep tropical mountains absolutely no wi-fi or mobile coverage no roads and delightfully few people so what was I doing apart from escaping the digital world? Well, I was being lucky enough to go trekking to see chimpanzees in Tanzania. A remarkable experience. And one of the things that I learned is that by some measurements, there's only 1.2% difference in the DNA makeup between humans and chimpanzees. And that statistic rather tickles me. Because at one level, you can round up to say, well, we're 99% the same as chimps. On other levels, it um, rather shows that small differences matter. So on a serious level, as we sort of look at AI and the bringing together of human capabilities with digital, whether something is 93%, 95% or 99% accurate is going to say a lot about how useful it will actually be. And at a less serious level, um, this would be a rather different evening if I was spending the next 25 minutes with a bunch of chimps. So, um, di small differences can matter. Let me set the scene for this talk. Um, 
Since 2000, I've been working in areas where the questions raised from combining human and digital have gone from being possibly slightly academic to being life-threatening to entire businesses. Where in 2019, it's a serious question for me as the parent of a three-year-old what education should look like in order to prepare her for the future world of work and indeed life and where we see perhaps unprecedented political challenges because large numbers of people feel they have become completely disempowered and left behind by an increasingly digital economy. The digital revolution and the accompanying explosion in the quantity of data being created are, a re are the reality today, but I do think it's worth restating the scale and speed of change. You'll be familiar with the growth in internet connections as being the fastest tech adoption in, in history. But to me, the more significant parts of that are twofold. Um, firstly, from a world where 15 years ago the internet connections were all fixed line to a world where the vast majority are mobile. And that untethering of the internet transforms its power as wearables, embedded devices and such like become connected to that digital world. And secondly, from a place where the action was happening in the Western Hemisphere to the reality today that it's happening globally and particularly in China, India and increasingly Africa. But the piece that really blows my mind is the scale of the data that results. The noughts become, quite frankly, completely impossible to imagine. So as a sort of ex-history student, I find this kind of analogy helpful. And I think it was originally used apropos of Coke, so forgive me. A billion hours ago, modern Homo sapiens appeared. A billion minutes ago, Christianity began. A billion seconds ago, the IBM PC was released, but a billion Google searches ago was sometime this afternoon. <laughs> Meanwhile, Homo sapiens hasn't changed a great deal. There may be a few repetitive strain injuries from middle-aged folk desperately bashing their smartphones. <laughs> Teenagers have probably got greater manual dexterity than has ever been seen before in their thumbs. And researchers are stressing about um, the apparent drop in our ability to concentrate for more than 20 seconds. But fundamentally, the way our brain works hasn't shifted. That takes millennia. We may now understand that adults actually have more plastic brains than we thought 20 years ago, which help explain, for example, the impact of meditation. But equally, we know that we're fundamentally wired in the same way as we were thousands of years ago. So if that's the backdrop, then it seems to me obvious that this is a challenging scenario to live and lead within. A human mind, which hasn't changed much, dealing with incredibly rapidly evolving technology. And I'll highlight just a few examples from where I've been involved to try and bring that alive. So in 97, I joined Tesco to run Clubcard, really at the dawn of big data. And in 2003, after a stint as strategy director, became CEO of Tesco.com. Um, 
Stephen's done the rest of it. Um, but during my career in retail, effectively e-com has gone from being less than 1% of all sales to now being in the high teens. And I think it's, in, it's undoubtedly influencing probably about 85 to 90% of all retail sales. So it is an enormous shift in a very short period of time. Um, and it's one of the areas of digital development where the UK does pretty much lead the world. So us, China and South Korea have the highest penetration of, of e-commerce anywhere. Now, I'm a non-exec director, as um, Stephen said, um, with a variety of organisations. Um, and across all of those worlds, digital's importance is growing hugely. So in the recently published long-term plan for the National Health Service, the ambition to take digital primary and outpatient care mainstream is boldly stated. Whether that's avoiding up to a third of outpatient appointments, digitizing every hospital by 2023, or introducing AI into radiology to get more accurate scan results, it's very clear that the intention and the power of digital is being unleashed on how we deliver health. At British Land, it's a, it's, we're seeing the impact of embedded connected sensors creating smart buildings where it's now possible to monitor everything from energy usage to actually how intensively the space is being used and reconstructing deals with our tenants accordingly. Or um, at Immunicore, I'm also involved in a, in a biotech company, where big data may finally actually change the incredibly slow process um, and years it takes to get a drug approved, even for very, very life-threatening conditions. Actually, potentially being able to use big data as opposed to randomised clinical trials may in fact speed things. Um, or indeed the cultural sector. So I'm, I'm also involved in two arts organisations where digital is a key part of making sure that your taxpayers' money given to those cultural organisations through the Arts Council is real, digital is making that money go further by pushing online sales as opposed to manning ticket desks or using big data to optimise the pricing of seats. So I think just that example, and you'll all have your own, um, kind of shows the variety of the proportions of human and digital today across different sectors. And it's clear to me that it's evolving rapidly still. And wherever you work today or will work, it's clear that we're just in the foothills of that new landscape. In my view, what defines how much value is created, whether for the customer, a citizen, a patient, or the environment is how we bring together human and digital. I will make four observations that I've experienced and then seen in broader context that I think may help each of us chart our own way forward in our own worlds. I'm not tonight going to engage in the huge public policy implications of some of this. I look forward to your next series of distinguished speaker lectures and attending one where this is discussed by someone much more eminent than me. Um, right, so my first observation. I think that whatever the combination of digital and human, the single most important factor is whether the customer and user is the predominant focus or not. 
I firmly believe that if you start with the customer and design your proposition around them, whether as a customer, as a citizen, as a patient, you've got the best chance of being successful in the long run. Digital, so businesses have perhaps always said this, but I think that digital has brought a new sort of sharp edge to it, partly because of the process of how a website is designed. So any good website will be designed in a user-driven way. I was involved in this firsthand when um, the Government Digital Services Advisory Panel was first started in 2011-12. And I still think that the journey they went on is a brilliant exemplar. So GDS, the Government Digital Service, was established as government's answer as to how to tackle the digital revolution in government. And their immediate task was to get a grip on the 250-some websites that had popped up from various government departments and that were popping up at the rate of about four a week, all of which were basically putting forward that department's strategy and policy with absolutely no interest in anyone who might actually read it or use it. Um, and GDS's response was gov.uk, and I still think that it was utterly brilliant. So essentially to say, this is, it, will all, it will all be housed in gov.uk, and here are some design principles about how we are going to do that. And they quickly realised that they had to start with their user. So if you're ever looking for some really evergreen design principles, go back to their 2012 guidelines. I quote... Good design starts with identifying user needs. If you don't know what the user needs are, you won't build the right thing. Do research, analyse data, talk to users. Don't make assumptions and have empathy for your users. And don't look at them now, perhaps. <laughs> but I think most commercial consumer organisations now get this but it is actually surprisingly difficult to do. And sometimes, in my experience, that's because what's being revealed by the move to greater digitisation is that the organisation wasn't actually perhaps as customer-orientated as it thought it was. A nice example is the returns process at Marks & Spencer. You couldn't return clothing that you'd bought online to an M&S Simply Food. In a world where M&S Simply Foods were fewer than the big shops and where all clothing was bought in store, this might once have made some sense. In a world where 25% of clothing was bought online and there are way more M&S Simply Foods than mainline shops, it's completely untenable. So the right way forward here, you won't be surprised to hear, is a fundamental redesign of the internal processes in M&S not a website that seeks to explain why the returns policy is right. <laughs> I'm pleased to be able to tell you that you can now return clothing at M&S Food, um, but can you see the scars? So it's a nice example of digitisation reveals, in fact, that the process was not at all orientated around a customer. The NHS is also a, is a fascinating case. The last few years have seen a really important development in its digital plans. There's a whole strand of work called Empower the Person. And this encompasses things like the NHS app and the digitisation of maternity and early years. 
And what digital is doing here beyond trying to make sure that, as a new mother, you don't have to tell every single professional the same information that you told them last time, um, is actually enabling a very profound shift in the patient-clinician relationship to enable citizens and patients to take a more active role in their own care. So again, it's putting the customer, the patient, at the centre of things through the process of going digital. And a subset of learning in this space about kind of put your user front and centre is that that actual human digital interface interaction is key. So there's kind of, there's a reason why Tesco went from a, a card to a key fob, this is with club card, from a card to a key fob to a QR code on an app to contactless. They're trying to make it as simple as possible for you to use that card all the time. Um, Equally, there's some really interesting work at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford where clinicians have designed a much better way of taking a patient's vital statistic, observations, which they have to do many, many times a day for the very seriously ill, and done it in a way that takes absolutely zero extra time to take that observation and capture that data digitally, where in many other places they haven't cracked that. Um, and so it's that kind of painstaking <coughs> detail about the user is essential to getting high take-up. You know, it's clear that that human and digital interface is going to be really important in self-driving cars, you know, how the transfer process takes place, at what point the car's own capabilities kick in. And I think that John Lewis are onto something in giving human names to pieces of AI in their call centre it makes them more relatable and it accelerates their adoption by partners who are working with them. So that whole kind of how do you interact, human and digital interaction. So that is my first point. In all the excitement of the new developments in digital, don't lose sight of that most important thing, design with real customer or user needs at the centre. Um, my second observation is that we should honour the relationship between the human and their data their digital footprint. I feel very strongly here that those using data have a big ethical obligation to ensure that the provider of the data, most typically the consumer or user of the service, does knowingly consent to the provision of that data and does understand what it's being used for. This isn't simple stuff. It can rapidly get very complex, both in technical terms and in legal. But I do actually think that GDPR has been a good thing. It's given us in the UK and Europe a much clearer basis from which to work. The US, for example, I think is a long way behind. My work with Tesco Clubcard gave me some insights into this whole area when we were very early pioneers in the uses of big data. At Clubcard, we were extremely mindful of the fact that customers were giving us something very important. They were sharing their actual individual buying behaviour and they trusted us to do something that benefited them with that data. While at one level, it was a transactional relationship. I let you collect my data, you give me points that I can turn into real money. It was also a more emotional thing. It was the way Tesco thanked customers for shopping and customers felt some kind of connection. The lessons I learned then were threefold that it was vital to have a clear charter and framework within which we took data decisions about how we used that data. The second was that it was 
important to be clear with customers what we did with that data, even if at times they didn't seem very interested. But I also learned that it was hard because customers expected, ironically, that we would do more with the data than either we were capable of or indeed we actually wanted to do. So there was a mismatch of expectate between expectations and reality. And I think that still very much exists. When M&S first introduced online ad retargeting, which is that slightly spooky thing where when you visited a website and are halfway through buying a pair of trousers, those trousers then appear on every other website that you visit. Um, I was very insistent that the company we worked with added a feature to their software that enabled customers to click a question mark on those ads and actually understand what was happening and then to take action if they wanted to, so either to block ads subsequently or to accept. Because in my view, a customer who feels done to is a vulnerable customer and that's not a good place to be. My personal feeling here is that society and individuals have been a bit left behind by developments from tech companies. I think we need to develop better frameworks and processes by which we all become aware of what's involved and whether we agree. I think it's a two-sided thing. Citizens need to build their knowledge and take part in the discussion and seek the frameworks they want. I'll give you a positive example of the kind of thing I think we need to see much more of. As part of joining NHS Improvements Board, I've become aware of an organisation that I suspect is too little known, the Office of the National Data Guardian, who is an extremely formidable lady called Dame Fiona Caldicott. Their remit is advisory, to challenge the health and care system to help ensure that citizens' confidential information is safeguarded securely and used properly. And I have enormous respect for the work that they do and their approach because they operate in very tricky territory. Currently, we almost certainly do not share enough data across the health service. So I was surprised when, as kind of part of my induction, I was shadowing a London ambulance um, overnight with two paramedics. And um, they had no information about the person they were visiting other than what that person had told the 999 call handler. So the first thing that these two paramedics are doing, particularly when we go into elderly people's homes, is saying, do you have any hospital discharge papers that we could see that would help us understand your condition? Because often the patient themselves didn't really understand what was happening. So I'm sure that you would agree that there's probably in that instance a strong case for sharing more patient data. But as we do that, we must, of course, safeguard confidentiality and keep the public's trust. So one of the things that the National Data Guardian has been doing carefully over a number of years is public consultation, involving citizens' juries as well as more normal consultation routes. And I think the citizen jury is perhaps a particularly useful model here because it gives ordinary citizens the opportunity to become more informed about what's at stake and the issues. And given that these aren't simple topics, that time and ability to quiz experts does actually enable detailed questioning and a much more nuanced understanding to emerge. 
And interestingly, typically, citizens go on a kind of curve. So they start quite kind of cheery about sharing data sounds like a good idea. They talk to the experts for a while and they go, oh my God, that sounds terrible. And actually, by the time you've kind of been through a three-day exercise, they are beginning to, to see what can be put in place to safeguard. They're really clear about what the priorities should be. And I think that's a really nice example of the sorts of things that we should be seeing more of. The, the RSA have done some similar work around AI. I would really commend their, 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 some of their papers. They're very interesting. So my second observation is about that honouring of the relationship of the data provided to their data and thinking very carefully as businesses, organisations, about how we best engage to develop informed consent and knowledge. My third observation is the importance of building digital talent and designing the right organisation shape and ways of working. For me, it's about ensuring you have got the skills in place really to take advantage of what's happening. I don't think this is just about building dig capable digital teams in organisations. I think that's a starting point, so whether that's GDS for central government, most recently NHSX for the NHS, or digital teams in, in John Lewis or Tesco. I think it's about the much wider senior management and whole workforce upskilling in thinking digital. Um, Stephen has rather stolen my part of my sort of speech at this point about reminding me of the story of when I was a CEO at Tesco.com. My, my observation there is that at one level, the fact that no senior exec had any direct experience of websites or apps and therefore didn't bother to go and visit them and phone me up with their thoughts, at one level it made my job much easier. I could just sort of theoretically get on. Actually, it made it much harder because what I was discovering all the time was that the, 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 the bigger business needed to make some very fundamental changes in how it did things in order for us to be successful digitally. And if I couldn't get their level and engagement and skill up, I was actually quite stuck. So the first thing I did, in fact, on joining M&S with the kind of very clear mandate to begin a process of digital transformation was to design um, a leadership programme in digital awareness. Now, that's no small commitment because I didn't, certainly at the time, I didn't feel this was anything that could be outsourced. It really needed to come from me and my digital team. So we had to design it and then we had to deliver it to 250 people two days each. So that was a huge time commitment, but I'm very sure that it was the right thing to do in terms of actually trying to build some level of skill and knowledge. Because organisations can become remarkably blind to things outside their familiar world. So M&S didn't deny that the internet was happening. They just didn't think it was relevant to their older female customers and their business. I think often building the right climate and culture can create the conditions for those skills to thrive. And I've been very impressed by what I've seen at John Lewis, where human and digital is at the heart of how they're designing the future for that business. Two little examples. The first is using partners' own social media skills to share messages with their friends and family so that external um, advertising and communication can be successfully amplified. The theory's fine. Very few organisations trust um, their extended workforce to do that. Um, the second is work on enabling 
those partners who work as personal stylists in some of the newest John Lewis shops to contact customers at an individual level when they think that they see something on the new season rails that would suit the person that they styled last month, six months ago, etc. Again, a very personal connection enabled by, by data and by digital literacy skills. I think being a different model where partners are co-owners does create an importantly different culture where individuals do feel much more empowered to upskill themselves and create different and more interesting jobs. At a wider societal level, I'm sure we need to be doing but more both to build digitally enabled society and workforce and to create the leaders in government and civil society who have the knowledge and skills. Various think tanks have suggested that around 11 million adults are not digitally literate today, and this is a huge cost to us as a society and to them as individuals. And it's clear that the rise of machine learning and AI will change how we work. Put simply, it will become less about how humans operate processes and more about how humans design and audit processes that machines and AI are running. So that's true whether you're talking about the processes that take place in a customer service centre or in a patient pathway involving radiology. As more machine learning and AI get developed, the rate at which we will need, whether as companies or as a country, to help people retrain and learn new skills is going to increase, and I believe we should be doing more to face into that. Different organisational constructs are also necessary. I haven't used the word agile so far, partly because I think it's massively overused, but I do think that it's important. For me, it's as, it's as much about building a culture of experimentation and learning as it is about a particular way of developing code. The principles are applicable much more broadly, since they're about being empirically data-driven, iterating rapidly so that the teams learn from real results, having all the right skills in the room so things are inherently cross-functional and not being frightened to fail fast and try again. And given how early we are in the journey of that changed relationship between human and digital, I think that organisations that want to succeed should embrace that rather different culture. My personal light bulb moment came in about 2005 when the Tesco.com team was spending a lot of time and effort evaluating whether we should add PayPal as a payment mechanism. Kind of seems obvious now, but never mind. At the time, this was a big thing because PayPal was four times more expensive than any other payment mechanism. So we had to try and work out whether it would actually increase conversion or not. So elaborate models, assumptions, blah, 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 blah. Until in one meeting... A new person said, why don't we just add a PayPal button to the website that customers could click if they were interested? Wouldn't do anything. We'd just thank them for registering their interest. Sheer genius. <laughs> How daft. We suddenly all looked with our models and assumptions. Let's just do the experiment and learn. It may sound trivial, but I have to say it made me rethink a huge amount about how we worked and what we'd got to do different in the future. Which is probably not a bad segue into my fourth observation about what leadership is needed in this changed world. And I think the hallmarks of successful leadership in this space include, and I've got four, I think it's about looking outside, not inside. 
and with kind of open-mindedness and genuine curiosity. And then engaging with customers, partners, whoever, to develop new solutions. So it's about admitting that you might not know the answer, which is, as a leader, not normal behaviour, I would say. Um, secondly, I think it's about prizing delegation rather than control and having the confidence in the values of an organisation so that decision-making can be diffused um, throughout the organisation rather than concentrated in middle or top layers. And that's why I'm, for example, very, was sufficiently interested in the John Lewis experiment in co-ownership to want to join their board, because I think that that model does enable a very different attitude to how you take decisions. I think the third thing that's important is encouraging appropriate boldness over caution. I probably used to think about this as boldness over caution. But when you come to the NHS and what's at stake is people's lives, I think it's appropriate boldness. So I do think it's better to take some risks and do some stuff rather than sit frozen in the headlights. But I think it has to be thought about in each context as to what the right balance is. And then finally... I think that collaboration, <laughs> leaders need to value collaboration over individual effort. And that is um, easy to say and massively difficult to actually put in place in terms of reward systems, incentives, appraisal, etc. But I think it's really important. I think that how the world of work happens every day is changing so much that a leadership model that thinks it knows the answers can't be right. Boards who lead that change by upskilling themselves, whether that's through days run by decoded, off-sites that include visits to tech accelerators, reverse mentoring, those guys are on exactly the right track. I have a view that organisations, and perhaps I could grow that to countries, largely get the tech that they deserve. If senior folk believe they can get others to worry about it because it's only IT, then they deserve to be in trouble. So tonight, my argument is that we shouldn't be afraid of the changing digital world. I believe that it offers immense potential to improve our companies, our citizens' experience, our lives. And while I don't believe that we can know exactly what's going to happen, I would argue that the experience of the last 15 years to date offers some pointers for what might matter. Designing for real users, creating the right ethical frameworks for using data that build trust and transparency, developing the skills and structures that allow us to capitalise on the potential of combining human and digital, and ultimately rethinking what leadership means. Thank you very much for listening and not behaving like chimpanzees. <laughs>
on the digital side. So one of the problems I've encountered, which you clearly um, overcame, is executives who don't really get it. And it was a, a very bold step of, of um, educating 250 people for two days about digital. How did you manage to achieve that without patronising them? Don't call it education. Um, it's a really, really, it's a really, really tricky thing to do. And funnily enough, I'm sort of facing it right now in, in the NHS because I think we're kind of creating a new central structure there. And I think exactly the same thing applies, is how do we raise the digital literacy levels to, for people, for leaders to be able to engage appropriately. Um, I think things, I mean, what I was able to capitalise on M&S was the notion that leadership development was already an acceptable idea. So that kind of, you know, you, you as a leader, you still did go on these modules to, to learn various different things. And so I was able to kind of package it into that and therefore it felt it felt more palatable. I think, you know, I've seen different boards simply you know, lead by example. So if you can get yourself to have a conversation with the board, then just the process of them, whether it's to taking on board reverse mentors, those sorts of things can again make a big difference. But you, a persevere would be my advice because you're absolutely onto it. Without the leadership getting it, it's, it's too hard. Thank you. Uh, I think we have a question up, right up at the back, on the left. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you very much, Laura. My name is Daria, and I'm a final year student here at the university. As much as we'd like all of those that are leading in tech at the moment to have as benevolent an approach as yourself, oftentimes we know that by design that's not the case. So could you offer up some tangible potential regulations that we could see, especially when it comes to striking the balance of regulating the industry appropriately um, and maintaining the necessary internet freedom that allows us that opportunity to grow. Thank you. Um, I, I sort of did deliberately say I'm not going to get too much into public policy. Um, but I think that um, the we in Europe are beginning to think about how we flex our muscles in terms of dealing with the tech companies and what they choose to do with data. And I would just, I think we should um, do more of that and, in, and encourage that. I don't think that that needs to stifle innovation. Um, so that would be my kind of slightly simplistic answer. Um, I don't have a great long, I'm not a I'm not, you know, luckily in a way making policy on this, so I don't have a great long list, but I think we are right to be more demanding of those companies than um, their home jurisdiction has been. Thank you. Uh, Sorry, and I think if we make enough fuss, actually we do have an impact. So I think that Matt Hancock on, on the question of, of, you know, you have got to be able to do more than you are doing about self-harm is absolutely right. So, so I think it can. I think that's a nice example of things can happen if we choose to care about them. Sorry. Okay, thank you, um, Brett Sadler from the UK Leadership Academy. I'm re really interested because the title of your talk was human and digital, but the prevailing feeling 
seems to be human versus digital. Um, obviously, this audience is probably not representative, but if you take the majority of the population, that would be the response. And I, I don't know if you saw the documentary that Hannah Fry did a few months ago, uh, looking at using AI for diagnosis and the impact that that's having on um, medical practices and their responses, they're creaming off all the patients that have low needs and we're all the patients that have significant needs. So the response was, and, and this is why I think it's interesting from the human point of view, the response was they should stop this because it's affecting our funding. The funding is done on a basis and we've got expensive patients to service and we're getting less funding. It wasn't how can we use AI to redistribute funding by linking it with big data to work out the funding requirements based on socio-demographics of their patient base or anything like that. It was, let's stop it. So how do leaders within organisations, not just the NHS, but leaders generally, facilitate the kind of conversations that create the thinking of how can we harness AI or digital to be part of the solution rather than the knee-jerk, oh, this is a problem, yeah. we've got to stop it. Yeah. I think my answer is sort of horses for courses because I think in some instances prescriptive um, answers can be right. So if I go, and it's, you won't think it's directly the same point, but if I go back to GDS and the launch of gov.uk, there was no way that persuading government departments was going to work. It needed to be a fiat which says you cannot have your own website. Um, I think in the case of the NHS, and I think you're talking about um, companies like Babylon, etc., so GP Online, um, we can and are looking at the payment mechanism because it, what, I, what I've seen for a little bit from the inside is that the advent of that business has actually got a lot of GP surgeries going, blimey, how do we do this then? And I think that's a terrific good you know good news story but if i'm honest if babylon wasn't there creating this pressure point i'm not quite sure that gp surgeries would be going quite as enthusiastically as i've seen some of them do blimey we better try and do this ourselves because actually otherwise babylon will will come along and take our take our you know our, our least expensive patients so i think that we can we we can redesign um some of the financial structures to actually not um have it work against um, so I, I guess, um, and I, I think we've got an important job, um, and the, the BBC wrote an interesting response to the Lord's consultation on AI around how do we actually change some of the public dialogue in this, in, in this whole area. And surveys are very, actually all over the place, partly because the experts are all over the place. You know, is AI, AI, the estimates for what impact AI is going to have on jobs varies from kind of 15% to 60%. Well, at that point, you, as a member of the public, you're going, hmm, don't know. And, you know, you can do some, there are some polls that actually show that relatively few people in the UK are that worried about the effect of AI on their, jo on their job. So... I think we've got a, we've, we need to be doing more to encourage the public dialogue. I'm, no. I'm nervous. Sorry, I'm, I'm conscious that there are a lot of hands. I'm afraid we've only got a couple more I'll be questions. Quicker. 
Uh, I'm John Kingman. I'm proud to be a, an honorary doctor of this university, but I also saw the university develop from Bristol Polytechnic from the vantage point of another university down the road. Uh, I wanted to ask you, because it seems to me that the Achilles heel of our increasing dependence on digital is reliability. The computers that are essential to our life crash, and they crash regularly. And this seems to be something that this incredibly sophisticated industry worldwide is not able, perhaps even not willing, to uh, challenge and to overcome. Um, I, okay, my, my take on that is that for most things that are sort of life-threatening, we are getting better at ensuring systems are reliable. The basic issue is its cost. So people, it's the extent to which people are prepared to pay for redundancy in a system in order to have 100% uptime. And that is probably too expensive in most instances. And therefore, you're, it's a debate about cost. I think that for key things, companies are getting better at acknowledging that actually there needs to be more redundancy and failover. I think that um, we also, in many cases... I still think that tech is at a very early stage, and therefore the fact that, I'll give you an example, you know, Wi-Fi is far from universally available. I mean, it really is far from universally available. So whether you get on the GWR train and it's not working today, or you're the d district nurse trying to actually enter a patient record where I live in Suffolk, that just isn't Wi-Fi. That doesn't, to me, say that that future isn't coming. It says we've actually got to invest in ensuring that we've got the infrastructure. So I think it can be done. I just think we haven't necessarily chosen always to do it. Hi, um, I'm Nick, and I'm running a startup in the online groceries. Um, and the concept behind it is um, picking recipes on a website, and then we make efficient suggestions. Um, and then in our back end, we log on to an online supermarket like Tesco's or Asda, who then deliver the products to you, and then you can log on and access the recipes. I was wondering, first of all, what do you think of the idea? And second of all, <laughs> and second of all um, how do you think supermarkets respond to it? Because I've heard that companies like Tesco's are actually losing out on online groceries. Um, well, actually what? Are losing, uh, losing money on the online groceries. And how do you think they respond to it? Not to it, but how do they... Yeah, okay, a little think? free consultancy in 30 seconds. Um, I think that uh, uh, online grocery is not a big money spinner, be fair to say. All the businesses believe they need to do it because they will otherwise lose customers. They are mostly still work, trying to work out how to make it make money. Um, I think that attitudes are changing a bit about how much of the... the how much of the kind of customer experience they need to control. So if, if you'd asked me this question, I don't know, six years ago, I would have said, good luck. Um, I think today, actually, there is much more openness about how can other people engage in that space that actually benef benefits both user and the grocer. So, there you go. Have a go. <laughs> But I think that, remember, they don't make a lot of money at it, but they still do want to do it. 
Hi, thank you. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm a shepherd. Um, and uh, just to bring it down to the basic level, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in this subject because I believe that humans really like trust. And we're really talking about trust here. Yep. And the important thing about trust is actually you're listened to. Where do you feel the digital will really be able, we really will be able to trust the digital age if we can't hit a stop button to say, actually, I do need to be listened to to rebuild that trust? Oof. Um, I think that, I mean, what, to me, what you're talking about is, is organisations choosing not to listen to people. And I think they don't need digital to make that choice. You see what I mean? I think they can choose it anyway. I think what I would be more optimistic about is I think that digital allows you to have a louder voice than you have ever had before if you're not happy about what you're getting. So I don't think that digital has fundamentally changed corporations' ability not to listen to their customers, but I think the power has grown in your hands to be able to embarrass them into starting to take your views seriously. So, there you go. I'm for one final question. Ah, last word. Um, hi, I'm Leslie Cowley. I'm DVLA chair, GDS customer, and so on. Um, I was interested to hear that you also made um, the move to take on some public sector board roles, uh, as I did too. What are your observations about the differences between public sector and private sector boards as regards digital? And how much more do we all need to learn? Um, I don't think I've got a very big base to go from. Um, but I, I would say that all the organisations I've encountered know that this really matters. Um, and I think are at varying stages, actually whether private or public, in that actual upskilling process and getting on with it. So I don't think that um, the private sector has got this cracked in the slightest and the public sector has not. I think it's much more nuanced than that. And there are bits of government, actually, which are really impressive in terms of their, their digital um, skills and the way they've used that to make the service better and cheaper and better value for all of us as, as citizens. So I, I'm sort of, I don't think I could, I, I'm definitely not going to say private sector good, public sector slow. Okay, thank you. Um, I know that there are probably a number of other questions, but hopefully you can chat to each other about those afterwards. Um, <laughs> I would just like to thank, on behalf of all of us, Laura, for a fascinating talk. I know that certainly as a university, we are constantly wrestling with that question about what should education look like to help us prepare for that digital future and how we provide that culture of experimentation to help people learn. So I think it's been really interesting for all of us to reflect on that. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of everybody here tonight. And I have a small token of appreciation. Thank you very much.
Just one brief announcement stands between you and the refreshments. Uh, and that is, uh, for those of you who want to claim your CPD uh, certificate at the end, please contact the registration desk to do so. Um, thank you very much for coming tonight. It's great to see so many people uh, make it through the rain. There is the opportunity for light refreshments, networking, and to reflect on some of tonight's fascinating talk if you'd like to join us upstairs. So thank you. For more information on the Bristol Lectures series, including details on how you can attend, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow the hashtag Bristol Lectures. Mm -hmm.